Welcome to the Russian Rulers History Podcast, Episode 103, Brezhnev and the Era of Stagnation. Last time, we recounted the beginning of the oligarchic rule of Kosygin, Brezhnev, and Podgorny, a consultative government as opposed to the sole leadership of the three previous heads of the Soviet Union, Lenin, Stalin, and Khrushchev. The era that we will be covering in this episode is the Era of Stagnation, a term first used by none other than Mikhail Gorbachev when he became head of the USSR. It's also an era where detente was being negotiated with the West, and also a time where incredible amounts of manpower, resources, and money was spent on making the Soviet Union a leader in military might. It would also be the period that accelerated the march towards the dissolution of the USSR. Brezhnev, by 1969, was beginning to consolidate more and more power into his hands. His method? By using the very thing he condemned Khrushchev for, nepotism. While Khrushchev wanted to ferret out corruption, Brezhnev actually thought it was acceptable, as he was once quoted as saying, nobody lives just on his wages. Within the population, a joke used to go around which said, they pretend to pay us, and we pretend to work. Theft in the workplace was a major problem throughout the Soviet Union, as there was a general sense that one had to look out for oneself and one's family. So unless the thievery was egregious or hurt others, witnesses winked, smiled, and turned away. I'm reminded of a story I heard back in the early 1980s when I worked at a camera store in New York City with a former uh, Air Force pilot for the Soviet Union. He had escaped about a decade before through Finland as he feared for his life. Oh, not because of any political issue, but because of theft. What people were stealing was the alcohol in the windshield fluid of the fighter jets he piloted, replacing it with water, which caused dangerous icing. He told me that people were drinking the stolen alcohol to drown away the boredom of life in the Soviet Union. Now back to the power struggle. Well, to the outside world, Podgorny, Kosygin, and Brezhnev were happily ruling the country as a unified oligarchy. But in reality, nothing could have been further from the truth. All three men were jockeying for position, playing one off the other. Brezhnev, for his part, was quietly consolidating his power, drawing in all the conservative members of the Politburo and the Central Committee. Dusigin and Podgorny tried to bring in all of the liberal-minded members into their camp, effectively splitting up the votes, weakening both men. When Kosygin and Podgorny disagreed on an issue, Brezhnev carried the day. When the two liberals agreed on something, Brezhnev was forced to go along. Internationally, according to diplomatic protocol, Podgorny was first, Kosygin second, and Brezhnev third. Internally, it was the exact opposite, with Brezhnev at the top and Podgorny at the bottom. Within the Politburo, the duo of Podgorny and Kosygin held the majority of the votes in their hands. The only problem was they were constantly bickering between themselves, 
disagreeing on all sorts of policy issues. So the question needs to be asked, what were the disagreements and how did it impact the power struggle? One of the main ones was economic reforms and in particular what the focus of economic policies should be. Kosygin, for his part, was a fierce proponent in increasing consumer production. During the Kosygin reforms, within the eighth five-year plan, it was carried out with modest gains, but somewhat mixed results. He believed that decentralization, a modest for-profit business model within a socialist framework, and other incentives would lift the Soviet economy as well as improve the quality of the products produced. What he hadn't counted on was the colossal administrative bureaucracy, which slowed down any reform that threatened its comfy existence. Now, Podgorny, for his part, believed in an agricultural focus, and that's what should be the economic priority, which kind of makes sense as he was Khrushchev's point man when it came to overseeing Ukrainian crop output in the early 1960s. But this was fraught with problems as the weather could always turn bad and lower the harvests. While grain production continued to improve, especially cereals, fodder grain used to feed animals was constantly in severe deficiency, so much so that the government was forced to import large quantities of grain from Canada, the U.S., and Argentina. Brezhnev, for his part, was more focused on heavy industry production, especially when it came to the military. He was okay with improved consumer goods and increased agricultural output, as they were both necessary to keep the Soviet citizens happy. But as an arch-conservative, Brezhnev was convinced that it was necessary to feed the military-industrial complex for economic reasons and foreign policy considerations. So let's look at those foreign policy issues. We're now in the year 1969, and it is the post-Czechoslovak invasion period. The arms race between the Soviet Union and the United States is in full swing, but a thaw was ongoing, having been started by Nikita Khrushchev. But a new term was now being introduced to the world, namely détente. Détente is the French word for relaxation or an easing of strained relations. The Russian term is razryatka, which loosely means relaxation of tension. This idea was the one and only major policy feature of the Brezhnev era, starting in 1971. Robert Service, who authored the book A History of Modern Russia, which I'm using as one of my sources for this podcast, claimed that detente really was only a continuation of the Khrushchev thaw. Alexei Kosygin was considered the point man in negotiating the numerous treaties that were to come out of the era of détente, much to the chagrin of Brezhnev, who considered détente his idea, which, for all intents and purposes, was true. The main treaties included the Biological Weapons Convention, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, and the Strategic Arms Limitation Talks, also known as SALT-1. This period of détente conceded, or coincided, excuse me, with the election of Richard Nixon as President of the United States and ended with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1980. Following the Moscow Summer Olympic boycott by Jimmy Carter and completely shut down by President Ronald Reagan 
1981, with a resumption of Cold War hostilities. Brezhnev believed that the key to achieving a state of detente with the West relied on the Soviet Union being an equal to the United States militarily. To achieve this, military spending between 1965 and 1970 rose by 40% and continued to increase for years to come. By 1982, the year Brezhnev died, military expenditures were a full 15% of gross national products of the Soviet Union. Comparatively, the U.S. spends one-third of that compared to its GDP. This absolutely staggering outlay by the Soviets is, in my humble opinion, one of the major reasons the USSR collapsed in 1990 and 1991. It was unsustainable, just as it is in the United States in 2012. Concurrently occurring with the onset of detente was the ugly child in the corner, the Vietnam War. Khrushchev was of the opinion that North Vietnam should give up its goal of liberating the South and negotiate a settlement, and because of their rejection of this idea, Nikita withheld support. After he was ousted, Brezhnev initially supported the peace settlement idea, while even talking to President Lyndon Johnson about it, but Soviet diplomat Andrei Gromyko informed him that Hanoi would not even think of accepting the idea. Brezhnev informed President Johnson that the Soviet Union supported the North Vietnamese decision, which caused Johnson to escalate the war effort in Vietnam, which included a massive air campaign to bomb the North Vietnamese. To counter that, the Soviets stepped up their economic and military support of the North. Simultaneously, the Sino-Soviet conflict was quickly deteriorating, even more than with Khrushchev. Brezhnev and Kasigin watched in horror at Mao Zedong's cultural revolution, which was devastating the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese people with the ferocity and excess of the Great Purge of Stalin in the late 1930s. A border conflict between the two communist powerhouses centered on an area in Tajikistan. A treaty signed during the Tsarist Russia and the Qing Dynasty of China in 1892 laid a borderline along the ridge of the Sarakol Range. A center point of the conflict was a group of islands on the Usuri River, and in particular, Zhenbo Island, known in Russia as Donansky Island. The border agreed upon, or rather foisted on the weak Qing dynasty, had the line drawn on the Chinese side of the river, essentially giving all the islands to Russia. Mao claimed that the treaty was a sham, and further upped the ante by saying that the Russians had stolen Upper Manchuria, Siberia, and the Kamchatka Peninsula from the Chinese, and he was going to get that back as well. Khrushchev was so infuriated that an agreement that had been reached by negotiators of both sides to give Zhenbo Island back to the Chinese in 1964 was rejected by Nikita. From there, the tensions just increased until it reached a crisis stage on March 2, 1969. Chinese troops started attacking Soviet border guards on Zhenbo Island, killing 59 men and wounding 94 others. The Soviet army retaliated by shelling Chinese troops on the bank of the Usuri, followed by an invasion of their own. T-52 tanks were sent to the island, and one was hit and demolished, 
and eventually captured by the Chinese. This was significant as the T-52 was a secret weapon with upgraded technologies that eventually benefited the Chinese. On March 15th, the Chinese suffered high casualties during a counteroffensive and were thrown off the island. Other clashes occurred along the borders, but a significant development occurred, which was a probe sent by the United States asking whether the Soviet Union would be interested in a joint attack on Chinese nuclear weapons facilities. The Soviets countered with a message asking what the U.S. response would be if the USSR attacked China by itself. At this point, Mao, having gotten wind of the Soviet-American talks, put out his hand to the U.S., offering to normalize relations. American President Nixon jumped at the opportunity, seeing an improved relationship with China as a way out of the Vietnam conflict, but more importantly, as a way of neutralizing the Soviet Union. Brezhnev, Kosygin, Gromyko, and Podgorny were stymied. In his insightful book entitled A Failed Empire by Vladislav Zubok, he talks of a Russian chauvinistic belief about the Chinese, highlighted by a joke which was circulating around Moscow, in which a Soviet commander near the disputed Sino-Soviet border called the Kremlin in panic, saying, Oh, what should I do? Five million Chinese have just crossed the border and surrendered. Well, because of this chauvinistic attitude, Moscow continued veiled threats of a nuclear attack on China in order to control the situation. This policy is what many believe led Mao to talks with the United States. The border conflict with China was not fully resolved until, get this, 2008. Border treaties were signed in 1995, 2004, and 2005, but the final deal wasn't completed until a few years ago. The Sino-Soviet conflict had devastating effects on Moscow's leadership and the communist world. The effect of this and the Czechoslovak invasion of 1968 was so great that when Brezhnev tried to convene a meeting of the international communist ruling parties, he could only get five out of 14 countries to send delegates. It was now apparent that the Soviet leadership of the worldwide communist movement was now officially over. Lenin and Stalin's dream of worldwide Soviet domination had come crashing down. But not all foreign matters were negative. A bright spot would turn out to be improved relations with West Germany. Now, Chancellor Konrad Adenauer was a long-time thorn in any discussions with the Soviets, as he was a staunch anti-communist. In September of 1969, he was replaced by the mayor of West Berlin, Willy Brandt, who exposed a new foreign policy known as Ostpolitik, which called for a thaw in relations with East Germany and Moscow. Cautious as they did not want to offend East German head Walter Ulbricht, backdoor negotiations began in 1969. By August 12, 1970, a time that I was actually in West Germany, a non-aggression treaty was signed between the Bonn government of West Germany and the Kremlin. Ulbricht was furious but because of internal pressure and from the Soviet Politburo, he was forced to resign and was replaced by a friendlier, Eric Honecker. They said in 1970, I had the privilege of going to East Berlin, 
because of this thawing of relations. And I was able to visit, and actually not visit, but meet my great uncle Albert, who lived in Leipzig, East Germany, as he was allowed to cross into West Germany. And that was when I visited my aunt in Wiesbaden. But what really struck me was his description of life in the East. And it stuck with me to this day. And he used one word, and the word was trist. And the translation from German is, it means sad. Now, with all the crises swirling around the ruling oligarchy, backdoor machinations were grinding away to see which of the three men, Podgorny, Kosygin, or Brezhnev, would come out on top. With Kosygin and Podgorny constantly bickering, Brezhnev was pulling out an old trick used by Stalin and Khrushchev as he was building his own cult of personality and removing unfriendly members of the Politburo and inserting people beholden to him and him alone. Podgorny was the first to show a major chink in his armor. In a speech in 1965 in Baku, Azerbaijani, he blasted Soviet leadership for their insistence in funding heavy industry at the expense of the consumer. He instantly created scores of enemies. But Brezhnev, while probably now able to remove Podgorny, hesitated, as Kosygin would certainly gain the upper hand and then would be just quite easily could have ousted Brezhnev. Because remember, he did have the majority in the Politburo. What Brezhnev could do was take down allies of both Kosygin and Podgorny slowly and carefully. First to go were Gennady Varanov and Petro Shalest in 1973, Alexander Shalepin in 1975, and D.S. Polanski in 1976. Finally, Brezhnev was strong enough to oust Podgorny in 1977, but not before using him to weaken Kosygin by changing part of the Soviet Constitution in 1977. Konstantin Chernenko came up with the idea, which gave Brezhnev's position in the government greater power. Brezhnev brought in many of his people into the Politburo to replace his old adversaries, like the aforementioned Chernenko, along with Dinamukmadid Kuneyev, Volodymyr Shcherchitsky, and Nikolai Tikhanov. Adding to his power grab, Kosygin's health was deteriorating. Alexei Kosygin's end was a real sad one, as he was hospitalized in October of 1980, and knowing that he was not very well, he submitted his resignation as Soviet Prime Minister. Immediately, he was stripped of all privileges, government protection, communication was blocked to the outside world, and any special items he had earned over the many decades of service were just taken away from him. When he died on December 19, 1980, he died alone, as none of the Politburo members, former aides, friends, or security guards ever visited him. And to top it off, because he died on the day before Brezhnev's birthday, they delayed the funeral for three days. Now, he was awarded a somewhat lavish state funeral attended by members of the Politburo, and his ashes were put in an urn in the Kremlin wall, but it is all show to show off the members that survived him.
And really, it was kind of a sad thing to see how Kasigan, who had done quite a bit for the Soviet Union, was kind of shunned in his last days. Now, Kasigan's legacy is one of competence and hard work. Canadian Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau put it best when he said that Kasigan was, quote, Khrushchev without the rough edges, a fatherly figure who was the forerunner of Mikhail Gorbachev. Andrei Sakharov said of Kasigan that he was, quote, the most intelligent and toughest man in the Politburo. Of Podgorny, little is known of his life after his ouster, except that he kept his seat on the Supreme Soviet for a few more years, but he eventually withered away until he died of cancer on January 12, 1983, outliving the man who ousted him by a little more than two months. Now, Leonid Brezhnev was alone at the top of the power structure of the Soviet Union on June 16, 1977, as he became chairman of the Supreme Soviet, as well as general secretary of the Communist Party. But all was certainly not well with Brezhnev or the Politburo. In 1980, the average age of a Politburo member was 69. Aside from Grigory Katushev, who was 53 in 1976 when he joined, and Mikhail Gorbachev, who entered at the age of 49 in 1980, very few members were what could be considered young or even middle-aged. The Politburo was a gerontocracy filled with the old Stalin appointees. Change was not an option for these old men, who were comfortable and well taken care of. As for Brezhnev, I want to read you an excerpt from Robert Service's book, A History of Russia, which I strongly, strongly consider a fantastic book and really recommend it to all of you. He says, quote, The growing cult of Brezhnev was outrageously at variance with actuality. His physical condition was deteriorating. He was addicted to sleeping pills. He drank far too much of the Belarusian Zubrovka spirit and smoked heavily. To his embarrassment, he was also greatly overweight. From 1973, his central nervous system underwent chronic deterioration, and he had several serious strokes. At the successive ceremonies to present him with orders of Lenin, Brezhnev walked shakily and fumbled his words. Evgeny Chazov, the Minister of Health, had to keep doctors in the vicinity of the General Secretary at all times. Brezhnev was brought back from clinical death on several occasions. The man in the East, whose finger was supposed to be on the nuclear war button inside the Soviet black box, was becoming a helpless geriatric case. He was frequently incapable of rudimentary consecutive thought even in those periods when he was not convalescing. The country was really unraveling economically by this time. Now, if not for the Arab oil embargo of 1973, the Soviet Union would have been broke by 1980, as my Russian history professor, Dr. Paul Average, predicted in 1976. The reason? Russia was, and still is, a net exporter of energy, such as oil and gas. The rise of prices caused by the embargo gave them much-needed cash and saved them. While the Soviet Union was the equal of the United States in terms of military might, 
it was in a sad state of affairs economically. So when we look back at the change from the czarist economy, we see little improvement for the common man in 1917 and 63 years later in 1980. The elite classes, like the czarist elites, were comfortable, not unlike the boyars of old during the apanage era. The nomenklatura was no different than the bureaucrats of the czars. As much as changed in Russia, little really did. Tens of millions perished between the revolution and civil war, the Stalin purges and the great patriotic war, and the name of Leninism, Marxism, and communism. So what came out of it for the people? The same misery and hardships. Then a shock was to hit the leaders of 1980 and the Soviet Union with the United States election of the right-wing member of the Republican Party, Ronald Reagan. The Cold War was to return with a vengeance and would accelerate the collapse of the USSR. But were Reagan and his policies really what caused the collapse? Not really, but let me explain. Brezhnev had created one of the most corrupt systems imaginable. As Robert Service put it, quote, the state was regarded with suspicion by pra practically everybody, and lying and cheating remained a popular, approved mode of behavior. The fish rotted from the head. Brezhnev was a cynic, and his family was corrupt. But even if he had been a communist idealist, he would have had no remedy. Now, with Brezhnev's health getting worse, an heir was being discussed amongst the Politburo, but all were concerned that his death would create a turmoil that might upset this status quo where everybody was really comfortable. Mikhail Suslov and Andrei Kirilenko were brought forth, but they were both older than Brezhnev, so they turned to Fyodor Kulikov and Konstantin Chernenko, who were younger, and then Kulikov, he goes up and dies in 1978. Yuri Andropov began to make his move after Suzlov died in January of 1982 as he took his seat as Central Committee Secretariat. That and his former position as KGB chief made him a formidable player. Despite suffering yet another stroke in May 1982, Brezhnev refused to resign. On November 7, 1982, Brezhnev was at Lenin's mausoleum for the celebration of the anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution. Three days later, Leonid Ilyich Brezhnev suffered a massive heart attack and died. Brezhnev was the second longest leader of the Soviet Union behind Stalin, having served for 18 years. His legacy is mixed. Gorbachev condemned his tenure, calling it, as we've mentioned before, the era of stagnation and for being a neo-Stalinist. His invasion of Czechoslovakia and Afghanistan sullied his foreign policy achievements like detente and the missile treaties. But as we look back, we can see an inflexible and vain man who cared more about fast cars and a cushy lifestyle than the people of his country. I want to tell you something. When I was reading this, it almost disgusted me about him. He would drive from his dacha just outside of Moscow 
and fast cars that were given to him by leaders of different countries. And he would hit people, run them over, kill them. And it didn't matter to him. It was just for his own excitement. And it is for this reason I decided not to go deeper into his life in the podcast. You know, there's a lot of work on Brezhnev out there that I was able to find. And I found him to be a really corrupt individual, someone that I just don't think deserves much more time. So with this, we put an end to Brezhnev. Now, while the Soviet Union realized its apex as a world power under the man, he created a slippery slope economically and corruption-wise that his successors could just not overcome. So join me next time as we cover the short reigns of Yuri Andropov and Konstantin Chernenko, as well as the rise of the last leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please give me a rating on iTunes. It helps boost me up the ratings and gets more listeners to join in on the love for Russian history. Now, of course, don't forget to visit us on Facebook at Russian Rulers History Podcast. where We've had some great discussions, some great posts from my listeners. Thank you very much. And that's where you can ask a question, leave a message, or make a suggestion. So now, as always, Das Vidanya Ispasiba Bolshoya.